Johnny, get your gun, get your gun, get your gun. Take it on the run, on the run, on the run. Hear them calling you and me, every son of liberty. Live from the Montague Hotel in London, England, this is Chris Garretts with the Pietist Schoolman podcast. This is kind of a surprise extension of our fourth season of the podcast. Uh, we are in London because uh, my co-host Sam Albury and I are leading a group of 22 people on an 11-day tour related to the First and the Second World War. So we start in London, and we're about to head to some battlefields in France and Belgium, and then we'll go to Paris and Munich. And we thought it might be fun because we had done a kind of preview season of each site with just Sam and me. Now that we're actually on site, we wanted to talk to some of the people going with us, get their impressions of what they've seen, what they've learned. So we'll be doing this uh, off and on for the next uh, week and a half or so, and we'll just put them up on our Pietist Schoolman podcast feed. So let me introduce our first guests, uh, Dick and Elaine Garretts of Pulaski, Virginia. Now, Dick and Elaine, what brought you on this trip? Well, I would say that it was promoted to us pretty directly by someone we know rather well. <laughs> I'm not a real good salesman, but I think this is one of my best sales jobs I've ever yes. done. Which yes, was, it, it I got was. my parents to travel, and you have not done a lot of international travel lately. When was the last time you were in London? We were here 26 years ago. And uh, what what's similar, what's very different, if you can think about oh, the two experiences? One thing that's notably different is the architecture. There's so much new architecture around the city, and especially uh, we were by the Buckingham Palace mm-hmm. area today, and it's just shocking to see. The Tower of London. Oh, yeah. Tower of London, yeah. yes. Yeah. And the uh, all the new buildings that are so sleek and glass and modern are just almost jarring against this ancient architecture all over the place. So that's quite different. It wasn't like that the last time we were here. But the part that's very similar is the way everybody sounds talking on the streets and uh, sorry, sorry, <laughs> you know, uh, and the, the shops and the pleasantness, basically. It's pretty much the way it was then. Yeah, it's interesting. We we Sam and I were here in January with uh, Bethel University group, and we did a little podcast from our hostel, which is by the tower. And that was one of the things we talked about: is London is this mix where, you, as you're just looking out at the Tower of London, you see a Roman wall, you see this Norman castle, but then you also see these skyscrapers rising behind. So it's this very old but constantly evolving, um, renewing city. So it's interesting that that struck you too. Um, Dad, is there anything that that struck you as different or similar about your first impressions of London after 25 years? Well, when I was here 26 years ago, and again on this uh, uh, trip to London, I was impressed by how cosmopolitan the population is, Mm -hmm. but how comfortable they seem just being part of London. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been in other cities where there are people from various ethnicities, various nationalities, but they seem to kind of locate within the city in their own little uh, partitions, whereas here everybody seems just intermixed. And yeah. uh, um, I think one of the things that I learned immediately on our very first destination on our tour here was that this is the home of the Academy of St. Martin's in the Fields, mm-hmm. my favorite uh, chamber orchestra. And 
somehow I always had the idea it was in some pastoral area out in the country, and here it is, a ministry of a church in inner city London. Right by Trafalgar uh, Square. So for people who aren't familiar with the chamber orchestra, they uh, played the soundtrack for the movie Amadeus. Mm -hmm. It's the only movie I've ever been at where the audience sat through the entire playing of the credits after the movie because of how spectacular the musical score was. So our, our trip started yesterday with a walking tour that actually began across from St. Martin's in the Fields in Trafalgar Square and then continued through parts of central London and near Hyde Park. And kind of the theme of the trip was how does London, how do the English remember the two world wars? So we looked at a lot of memorials of various sorts, statues um, and, and other kind of sites. Was there one that kind of stands out? And I mean, it's, that's a day in the distance now from you. As you think back over that tour, is there any memorial that you've seen then or since that really strikes you? I don't recall the name of it, but the one right toward the beginning of the tour with the you know, very plain... The Cenotaph? The Cenotaph. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was just very striking. And, uh, you know, it, it just, because it's so generic and you know that it it reminds you of how the the men who who died in these wars uh you know is their collective sacrifice that made victory possible and that uh you know the honor of war i guess is in the final outcome and we sometimes forget the individual sacrifices but it was just very moving because it it was so plain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mom, did you have a memorial that you uh, are going to take away from? from well, London? several, which was just so interesting to see so many of mm-hmm. them. But the one that I will remember the best is the one of the nurse that was... Edith Cavell. Yes, who was killed as a spy by the Germans. And I think you should probably explain. You have a particular connection, I think, to nurses in World War One that I have, I'd love you to share with people. That's exactly why I'm going to remember this one in particular, because my maternal grandmother was a graduate of the Bethesda School of Nursing in St. Paul in 1915, and she joined the Navy and went to Norfolk and was waiting there with other nurses to be deployed to France to help in World War One, and armistice was declared just before they were about to set sail. And she stayed there for a year and a half caring for war victims mm-hmm. uh, that had wounds that had survived to get back and for flu right. victims Influenza because of the epidemic. big flu epidemic that was worldwide then. Yeah. So, yeah, that's well, definitely... And you, you went on to be a nurse yourself for some time. <laughs> yes, so I was it's... the first granddaughter to be a nurse. So mm-hmm. that was real special bond between grandma and myself. And so I, I don't know if you noticed, I saw a little bit about Edith Cavell this morning. We went to the Imperial War Museum in South London and... And so there's a little bit about the role that nurses played, that women played in other facets of the war. Um, as you think about the World War I gallery, which is relatively new, it's about five years old for the 100th anniversary of the war. Um, like I've been through it a few times now, so I'm especially interested as newcomers to it. It's a fairly intense, immersive experience. Does it just feel overwhelming? Or I mean, are you already starting to pick out memories of something you learned about the war from, from that gallery? I had um, a a reasonable amount of knowledge about the Mm -hmm. war for not having any special education in Mm -hmm. that area. But it was one of the things that struck me the most by the exhibits is that 
you come away with a sense of how it was really a people's war. Mm. It wasn't, I mean, certainly it was massive for the all the boys that went off mm-hmm. to fight, but the impact that was left at home because of that and how this struggle it was for so many of them and for small towns and villages that had limited male population to have most of them in service at the same time really left them in a dire situation. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a theme of all nations, really. I, I mean, this is kind of focused on the British Empire experience, but mm-hmm. you saw things from Germany and yes. from other countries as well. Yeah. It'd be probably very true everywhere, yeah. but yeah. yeah, it really, if you kind of watched carefully, there was a lot of information that was directed to that mm-hmm. home front. Right. Yeah. Dad, how much did you know about World War One coming into this, and what's something you learned from that gallery or maybe the World War II gallery that you visited, too? Well, I hadn't had a lot of exposure to World War One, and uh, I was really impressed by seemingly how simplistic the military strategies were, and I guess easy to look in hindsight how unreasonable it seems to put millions of people at risk along two massive fronts mm-hmm. you know, the, the German and it, the Ger- Germany and its allies were waging war on this hundreds of mile long front on the western front mm-hmm. but also the eastern mm-hmm. front with Russia and the millions of soldiers that fought and died uh, at both of these fronts, uh, basically at a stalemate for four years. The other thing that struck me was that uh, many of the exhibits, as you went through the four-year period, demonstrated the increasing technology of waging war, mm-hmm. but how little advantage the leadership took to uh, help their soldiers yeah. wage battle. And so it just... So then we came to an exhibit that just struck me, and I think Elaine can comment too. She independently encountered this exhibit and had the same reaction. It consisted of a center, a semicircle couch where you were sitting and looking at a panorama view of the battle being waged. And then in front of you was a sound source where individual soldiers were telling you about their unique individual experience waging this war. And within a very short period of time, you stopped looking at the table and just listened to what they were saying as you watched Mm -hmm. this battle and felt like you were actually there. And I just felt how helpless they must feel, you know, seeing their comrades die. And again, the leadership not seeming to have a strategy to actually win the war. Right, right. Is that something that struck you too, Mom? It did. Um, I think anytime you have articulate testimonials from people that were participants in the event, you really get the emotion of it, not so much the you know academic military plans, mm-hmm. but the emotion of what it was like to be shot at or digging a trench or living in that trench or whatever. And it makes it very easy to relate to it. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, as, as the academic here, that, that's something that strikes me too, that this is ultimately the story of human beings thrown into an impossible situation, whether they're on the front or 
back home, the impossible situation of saying goodbye to someone and worrying about them and taking on a new challenge at work or whatever. Um, so listeners, if you want like a good history of the war, you can find many good academic narratives. The book I always recommend is by a Swedish journalist named Peter England, and it's called um, The Sorrow and the Beauty. And it's, it's subtitled An Intimate History of the War, and it's 20 stories of people from around the world. And so if you want kind of a longer version of what mom and dad just described, you can pick that up. Um, now, we're actually going to be studying the war in a different way because uh, starting Sunday, we're going to head across the English Channel to what used to be the Western Front. We'll start with a day in Flanders, a day on the Somme, and then move to World War II and go to Normandy. Uh, so as you look ahead to that experience, is there a particular site or battle or um, maybe an emotion you're expecting to feel as you do that? Oh, I know exactly what I'm waiting to see. Ever since the Charlie Brown special <laughs> on World War One, I, I have wanted to see the Flanders field that's described there and the, about the poppies row on row. And I, I know I'm eager to see that. And Normandy, being that it was just the 75th anniversary, what, yesterday, right. um, will be a highlight as well. Okay. Dad, what's one thing you're looking forward to seeing? Well, I'm looking forward to seeing Normandy mm -hmm. uh, and seeing it uh, standing in the position where the Germans were mm -hmm. based and what it must have felt like to them when they first saw this massive invasion <laughs> with was it thousands of ships and yeah. you know, hundreds of thousands of men, mm -hmm. uh, but also how superior their artillery was, given that uh, you know, air cover wasn't uh, protecting the mm -hmm. uh, invasion, and uh, uh, but then to go on the beach and look in the other direction and see what it must have been like yep. for. Uh, all of those soldiers as they embarked on this uh, impossible mission. Yep. So we'll we'll actually hear, we'll do more podcasts as we go, so we'll definitely hear from people after we've been to Flanders Fields and to Normandy. But Mom, Dad, thanks for kicking us off on this first of our kind of uh, live podcasts from Europe. Join us next time on the Pietist Schoolman Podcast. We'll be over, we're coming over, and we won't be